Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. America has no shortage of bad politicians. But why does the media fall in love with these politicians uh, that tend to ultimately end up on the ash heap of history? Uh, We have to look a little deeper. We also have to look in the mirror just a little bit. So let's begin. Think you know the news of the day. Think again. Well, it is time to think again about our politicians, about our obsession with them, about the media buying into whatever it is that they are selling And the Dispatch's American Politics Editor, Chris Steyerwalt, is here to discuss and help us. And Chris, you may not have known this in your very busy, hectic day today, that it is National Blame Someone Else Day. Well, you know, uh, I'm not in Washington today, but normally I live in Washington. (laughs) And Boyd, in Washington, every day is Blame Someone Else Day. So you just if you, you just got to try harder. I try. Okay. And who should we blame for that? That's my bigger question, Chris. <laughs> well, then you just said then you fall back on either uh, quote society or you can climate change. Just pick one, pick a meta, and then just slide right in there. No responsibility ever. Go it's big. Easy. That's right. That's right. Shrug shoulders, point figures, place blame. We got it. Uh, well, I want to dive into this. Uh, you've written some really fascinating things this week, yeah, as you always do. And give us some some good perspective from behind the scenes and behind the curtains. And and one of the things, of course, we've been covering this week, obviously, is New York Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, resigning amid uh, all kinds of sexual harassment charges, as well as uh, another investigation going on in terms of his handling of the uh, pandemic and COVID-19 cases. And and so as you look at that, as you kind of do the, the biopsy on that, so to speak, what is it that you see and why is it that we keep having this kind of lather, rinse, repeat when it comes to our uh, politicians? Well, you know, um, uh, the, the, you want to go big early. Uh, to go big early is because we forget human nature uh, and we forget <laughs> what people are like and we forget why we have limited government uh, and separation of powers is because we know that human beings are fallible uh, and fallen and have a tendency to do the wrong thing. That's why we don't make them into our rulers, and that's why we limit their power. Uh, Cuomo, there was a a confluence of factors for Cuomo. Uh, One big one was the press was looking for a counterweight to Donald Trump. They wanted to juxtapose Trump 
with somebody about coronavirus when Trump is talking about we'll hit him with the disinfectant and we'll put the UV light inside of him and all that stuff. The, the, the desire in the press was Trump is bad. Who is the anti-Trump? And he looked like just the right answer to a lot of people in the press. And they fell really hard. And I didn't understand it because I'm not trying to be mean, but just as a person who spent his career assessing political horseflesh, the guy was, you know, he's not that good. He's not that bright. He's not that insightful. He was he is a very pale imitation of his father, who was a very gifted politician, but he's a legacy politician without a great skill set. So I thought, well, this is weird. But the but you we can understand it by a couple of factors. Number one, the proximity device. So because we have really hollowed out local media in America, that's why I'm so glad that folks like you are doing what you're doing to put a focus on local news and and have people pay attention to what's around them. It's really important. But that national focus means that if you're a politician in New York or in the Acela corridor, you're going to get a lot more attention than you would otherwise. So that was a huge factor. And then the other one is this. Cuomo provided constant content. And in a content-starved media world, he was just pumping it out every day, two hours a day, making all of this content. And they fell for it, and they fell really hard. It was sad. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that uh, I think there's actually a lot of similarities. As you mentioned, he was kind of the counterweight uh, to President Trump. And, and in the end, they actually share a lot of uh, common, uh, I guess, perspectives or common, uh, I guess, skill set in terms of what they were deploying uh, to, to get power and then to keep power. Yeah, I think I think there's I think there's some truth in that. I think there is the, the you know, demagoguery. Uh, it, we don't uh, seek to avoid demagoguery uh, because it's unpopular. We seek to avoid it because it's effective. And it's the reason that the founders wanted to avoid it. The reason demagoguery is dangerous is because it's effective. When we appeal to emotion instead of reason and we and our leaders don't lead us uh, in ways that are steeped and rooted in rationality, that's a problem. And Cuomo definitely emoted his way through things and very much the way Trump did. I think another I think another big part in all of this, Trump and Cuomo share a capacity for brazenness. Mm. So here's Cuomo. He made a disastrous decision about the nursing homes in New York. But you know what? It was a tough time. People didn't know what to do. I'm sure that he thought he was making the right decision in New York. He made a bad call there. Other governors made good calls on other things. It was trying times. And yeah. I'm, I tend to be very forgiving of leaders who, in uncertain circumstances, when they, they're forced to choose, they make decisions. Sometimes you choose wrongly. What Cuomo did after that disaster, though, was to pretend like it didn't happen, say that, you know, we're winning. We did it all. He wrote a book uh, and got a $5 million advance wow. to write a book about his great leadership and never took any ownership of his failure. And to me, the greatest objection that I have to Andrew Cuomo and his governance is not that he made a mistake. It is that he refused to acknowledge it in any way. And in fact, just tried to bully past everybody on that track. And that was very often what Trump tried to do, too. Yeah, and I think that's so fascinating. Because I, 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 I agree with you, Chris. I, I've been one of those to, to point out regularly that it is a novel coronavirus for a reason novel being the important word there nobody knew uh, but not yeah. everyone was willing to accept accountability 
on the the back end of that. And uh, Chris, before I let you go, I want I want to get you mentioned something about how we're we're letting all of this uh, get so centralized in terms of our obsession with the presidency uh, as opposed to what's happening locally. Uh, I had uh, I had Greg Weiner on earlier today uh, talking about a piece he'd written oh. in the New York Times, and he pointed out those great statistics. And I wanted to get your take on this. Only 16 out of 435 congressional districts voted for different parties for the White House and the House of Representatives. So 4 percent of congressional districts, whereas in the 70s and early 80s, that could have been as high as 40 percent. Has all politics really just become national? And how do we reverse that and get it back to the local level? My my American Enterprise Institute colleague, Greg Weiner, the fantastic piece in The Times about if Congress won't be Congress, then the president will make himself into a dictator. Yeah. And it's, it, it, you know, we need urgently. And I, I the conservatives in America completed in the Trump administration a 40 year project to reclaim the courts after decades and decades of a left really starting in the 1930s right. of a leftward drift on the American judiciary. Conservatives got serious in the 1980s and said, this is a project, and you can date it to Roe v. Wade or you can rate it, uh, date it to uh, Robert Bork's nomination. But it was like, we got to get serious. And they did. And there's a lot of evidence that it's worked and that it's been really effective. Maybe the best evidence is that when uh, Donald Trump tried to steal the election, the judges he had appointed said no. Uh, the judiciary, it, the conservatives did a great job. We need, Boyd, for conservatives to take that same approach with Congress. It's time to make Congress Congress again. Conservatives have to engage in this. After decades of favoring presidential power over legislative power, which was understandable when Republicans dominated the presidency uh, and Democrats held Congress for 50 years, it was understandable that the bias sunk in that way. But whether you're a Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, in between, whatever – We need a Congress that works, because if we continue to have a Congress that can't produce legislation, if they can't get the job done, people will demand action. And you will have what the last three presidents have all done, which is to say, here is an act that is patently unconstitutional. And I know it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that is wickedness. And that is that is big trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Steyerwalt, always appreciate your perspective uh, from the dispatch and AEI, and uh, we'll have you back again soon. We need to continue this conversation uh, because it is the conversation we have to get to, and it all starts with each of us looking in the mirror uh, because we keep sending the same folks back. Uh, This is a we the people issue. We've got to do it different. We've got to have a different kind of conversation. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Amen, brother. All right, uh, we're going to step aside for a quick commercial break. Uh, we are rolling into fall and fall sports. KSL News Radio's Alex Keery from Unrivaled is going to join me next to talk about bandwagon fans, players getting paid, and much more right here on KSL News Radio. Think again with Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.